This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Susan Derwin, and I am the director of the university's Interdisciplinary Humanities Center. On behalf of the center and the writing program, which is co-sponsoring tonight's talk, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the 2016 Diana and Simon Rabb Writer-in-Residence event. One of the Humanities Center's main objectives is to create opportunities for the campus and community to engage with today's most important voices in the humanities and arts. We are most grateful to Diana and Simon Rabb for supporting our mission. Their Writer-in-Residence program has enabled us to bring the most creative contemporary practitioners of literary arts to campus to participate in programs like tonight's and to meet informally with UCSB students. Diana Rabb is herself an award-winning memoirist, poet, editor, and blogger. Her publications include two memoirs, Regina's Closet, Finding My Grandmother's Secret Journal, and Healing with Words, as well as four books of poetry. She has also edited two anthologies about writers on writing, and her forthcoming book, Writing for Bliss, will appear later this year. Like Diana Rabb, our 2016 writer-in-residence, Mary Carr, works in multiple genres. A poet, essayist, and memoirist, she has published three acclaimed memoirs, The Liars Club, Cherry, and Lit, all of which are scheduled to become films or television series. Is that right? One television Okay, so either or. Now, uh, in 2012, you may not know, she released Kin, an album she co-wrote with country music singer-songwriter Rodney Crowell. But even with her fame as a writer of creative nonfiction, Carr considers herself, above all, a poet. She once said, working on poems is like cheating on your husband. It's what I really want to do, but they won't pay me for it. Her four volumes of poetry include Viper Rum, which contains a reprint of the controversial essay Against Decoration, in which Carr advocates for the virtues of clarity and and direct expression in poetry and against what one critic has described as the emotionally vacant virtuosity of neoformalism. Carr is the Jesse Truesdell Peck Professor of Literature at Syracuse University, where last year she also gave the commencement address. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including a Pushcart Prize, a Penn Martha Albrand Award, and a prize from Best American Poetry. And she has received Guggenheim and National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships. Carr's newest book, The Art of Memoir, demonstrates her skills both as a storyteller and as a teacher as she takes her readers on a journey through the exhilarating and agonizing process of composing a good memoir. This is a wonderfully encouraging book for people who feel the need to give literary shape to their memories and who, to do so, are willing to engage in the ongoing self-examination that, according to Carr, memoir writing demands. Carr, Carr has said that in all of her books, As in her life, her own mind is her biggest enemy, 
which may be why when she wrote her last memoir, she tore up over a thousand pages of completed manuscript. (laughs) Such relentless editing may be what it takes to dispel self-illusions, dissolve defenses, and put thought-numbing enmities to rest, all of which is necessary, Carr's book suggests, if a writer is to find the voice that speaks from the feeling center of truthful memory. In this, it is difficult not to recognize that Carr's recent book is as much about writing an authentic memoir as it is about leading an authentic life. Please join me now in welcoming Mary Carr. Thank you. Thank you so much. If I lived here, I would never go to a single lecture. I would stay outside in my underpants all day, drinking fizzy water. Um, Thank you so much, and thank you to Diana, uh, just not only for the gift of being here, but um, for your hospitality and company and for the whole program. So thank you very much. gather myself up here a minute. You would think if I'd been doing this for 40 years, I'd be able to do it. I guess I wanted to start out by talking about poetry, because it's poetry that saved my life. Uh, Poetry, English teachers, mental health professionals, librarians, nerds, 'er ne'er-do-wells. There's something about the power of a poem to seize my attention. I was a weirdo little girl who grew up in East Texas, and I was a nail-biter, and I was sort of quick to startle. And uh, people talk about me like I'm this tough person because I think I have a salty tongue and a monosyllabic vocabulary. But really, I was the nerd. I was like the, the kind of little dweeby girl who got beat up by the big, scary bullies. Um, and so I was a kind of... In my household... I always say a dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. So um, I don't know if my family was worse than others. My mother was married seven times, uh, uh, twice to my father. You know, everybody drank a lot, and because it was Texas, we were well-armed. So, um, so I think all of those things conspired to make me a kind of a flincher and a fighter and a little weird kid. And my earliest memories were about sort of vanishing down the valley of a book. And so I wanted to start with a poem. It's one of my favorite all-time poems. I think it's one of the greatest poems ever written by uh, a Greek poet, Archilochos. Um, and again, I, I mentioned today that most of that a lyric poem can be a, a work of art. You can have the entire artistic experience in an area as big as your hand. You can look at a poem that's about as big as this hand is and have a whole range of feeling. And it's sort of, poet Philip Larkin said, you put the penny of your attention in the poem and you pull the handle and a feeling comes out. Um, So uh, this poem by Archilochos kind of embodies for me all the virtues of feeling and economy that I think seized me and seized my imagination when I was a young girl. The story, probably an apocryphal story, is that Archilochos's very best friend promised him in marriage uh, to his beautiful daughter. 
And then he found out that Archilochos' mother had been a slave. And he called off the engagement and, and, and married her off to someone from a fancier background. So this poem is called Liar. It's also really good since it's a political season, I think. It doesn't matter what party you're involved in. It's just rampant, kind of a rampant thing. Liar. It's also, I think, this poem is the source of all hip-hop. <laughs> Swept overboard, helpless in the breakers, strangled with seaweed. May you wake up in a gelid surf. Your teeth already cracked into shingle, set rattling by the wind, while on all fours, helpless as a poisoned cur, you puke brine reeking of dead fish. May those you meet, barbarians as ugly as their souls are hateful, treat you to the moldy wooden bread of slaves. And with your split teeth sunk in that, smile then as you did when speaking as my friend. It's kind of a great... Have you ever broke up with anybody? I mean, it's just, it's just a good thing to have in your back pocket. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's an example, but the idea that you could write something 5,000 years ago and that we could be sitting here in this room and all, and I know that you guys will love that poem, and you think, oh, it's a Greek poem, it's going to be this whole crummy, stodgy, stupid poem with gods and, you know, some kind of weird mythological thing in it. And yet, the feeling that it can offer is immediate and sort of, and as I was talking today, it's, it connects us in a way. Um, so my goal my whole life was to be a poet of that caliber, and so far, I haven't made it. However, um, even as a little girl, when I was 10 years old in 1965, I wrote in the only journal I have from my childhood, when I grow up, I will write one half poetry and one half autobiography. It's 1965. I was 10 years old. Um, I don't even know what autobiographies there were then. This was before Maya Angelou, I know why the cage bird sings. Uh, Richard Wright's Black Boy had been published. I know my mother had a very early copy of that. It had been a big New York Times bestseller in the, in the 1940s, uh, the first New York Times bestseller by an African-American. Uh, we had some George Orwell essays, I think. My mother was a big reader in this little swampy Texas backwater I was, I was born into. But I don't know where I got the idea of mem- memoir, but there was something. I didn't know how to be a person. I didn't know how to become a writer. I was stuck in this town. And so I thought, how am I going to get out of this situation, which is just reading hours per day in a state of socially sanctioned disassociation? I know. I will read other people's lives and see how they did it. Um, I mean, I, I think I was literally, it was like that kind of dumb. There was, but there was something about a single voice, about people writing about their own lives, kind of crying out of the wilderness of their own experience, that just made me feel less lonely. 
Um, the other thing memoir kind of always guarantees is, is uh, an emotional investment in the material. Nobody writes about themselves and is bored. You know, our readers may be bored, but we're always fascinated uh, by, all the things, by all the things that have happened to us. Um, so there was something about, like, so, so I literally, and I do remember later reading My Angela, I think I was in the 10th grade when Cage Bird came out, and thinking, you know, this woman grew up in a, in a country that privileges being white, and she grew up in the Jim Crow South, and she made it out of there to be this exalted creature, a writer, and when I read that book, even though she was from this completely different environment and was a person of color and I wasn't, I just thought I knew her. I thought, I thought she was my friend, I mean, you know, um, in a strange way. Um, so something about memoir captivated me very early, and I think I have, I have loved the genre as long and as passionately as anybody. I think that's... That's how I became a memoirist. It's, not, it's just really because I think I was more interested in it than everybody else. The memoir was sort of waiting to take off as a genre, and I just happened onto it at a, at, a, at a time. But it was something that sort of predates almost any other interest for me. Um, and I want to say nobody elected me the boss of memoir, that I don't, I don't hold any authority. I speak, I speak only for myself. Um, even though uh, I've, I've committed the crime of memoir three times, I'm not. I, uh, I'm still. I'm still not an, an expert. The other thing I wrote in that journal, right under the memoir line, was I am not very successful as a little girl. <laughs> when I grow up, I will probably be a mess. Um, and to me, I think it was that sense of feeling like a mess. Uh, Kind of the worst episode in my in my uh, somewhat troubled childhood. My mother had a psychotic episode and tried to kill us and set the house on fire. Me and my sister, and got taken away, capital A away, to the mental Marriott. Um, but I loved my mother. She was this person of enormous glamour. She was somebody who marched with Dar- uh, Martin Luther King. And she was in Selma, Alabama, my mother went, you know, uh, when, and she was this little Texas housewife, school teacher person. And, um, and she had lived in New York and been a painter. And so for me, writing my first memoir, Liars Club, was how do you share DNA with these people um, who have, you know, invariably break your heart? And let me say also, I think the most privileged person in this room, and this is a town of enormous privilege, and I think the person with the best car in the parking lot and the nicest jewelry has suffered the torments of the damned, just going about the business of being a person. And mostly, you have suffered at the hands of the people you love most in the world. And it's not, it's, I know people are laughing, it's funny, it's not funny, but it's it's not even that they want to hurt you that bad. They might even be the best people in the world, but everybody, nobody leaves this life without getting their heart broken, without being disappointed by someone they really care about. So my question was, how do I keep eating Thanksgiving 
with these insane people. Um, uh, how do I sort of navigate the distance between the fact that I have a post-traumatic stress disorder or, or that, you know, I, I wake up screaming or whatever, which I did a lot before I had a lot of therapy when I was a kid, and that I really love these people, and they're some of the most beautiful, interesting people on the planet to me, um, and, and I love them passionately. And so setting out to write my first book, The Liars Club, um, I, of course, I was young at the time, and I decided to write it as a novel um, because something about being able to lie felt very comfortable to me. Even though I knew the book was going to be called The Liar's Club, it didn't dawn on me at the time when I was working on it as a memoir that the, the character who was me in the novel was beautiful and noble and wise. She did volunteer work at the nursing home. She did calculus in the ninth grade. I mean, she was everything that I wasn't. And so something about working in fiction, people, I talked a little bit about this with the students today, there's this myth that you can just pick a genre, like, oh, I don't want to write a novel, I'll write, or I don't want to write a memoir, I'll write a novel. Well, a novel is a form that's, you know, has kind of a long couple, history, a couple hundred years old, and you have to know something about novel writing to do it. And memoir, let's face it, even though memoir has had this kind of renaissance in readership, it's a trashy form. Let's just call it what it is. It is a low-rent form. I mean, I remember I was in graduate school with two great memoirs, Jeffrey and Tobias Wolf, And um, I remember hearing Jeffrey Wolf say, it's kind of like inscribing the Lord's Prayer on a grain of rice. You know, like being able to do this, um, you have to be a little bit crazy to even want to do it. And what I've found among the memoirists I've met is that I think they have to be um, divided in some way. They have to find, they, they have to have two halves of themselves that they have to reconcile. And I think the greatest memoirs are all organized around something I call an inner enemy. Um, so my Angelo wants to wear a lavender old white lady dress to stand up and give the talk in her Bible uh, on Easter Sunday in her, her Bible church. And, and yet she's a person of color and she's, people say her eyes look Chinese and, and there are all these th- complicated things that are being said to her about who she is that are completely opposed by the, the, the costume she wants to wear. Um, Harry Cruz's memoir begins, my first memory is of a place 10 years, it happens 10 years before I was born and involves my father whom I never knew. Um, and he's doing something there that every memoirist has to do, which is he's cutting a deal very early on the first page of every memoir, you have to cut a deal with the reader about how you're going to handle the truth. So Cruz is telling us in that first sentence, I'm going to just, stuff that I heard that I don't know anything about, stuff, stories that I heard, apocrypha, the kind of stories we all have in our families, that's going, to be, that's going to be a large portion of what I'm writing here. A lot of the book took place outside his vision, but because he heard the stories about it for so long, he kind of appropriated them and kind of made them his. Um, 
So I fail at writing a novel. I try to write The Liar's Club, and I had a kind of time-honored reason to write it, which was I needed the money. Um, uh, And something about telling myself that I was going to give the reader the truth and nothing but the truth liberated me in some way. Uh, I also think I was, I had dropped out of high school and dropped out of college, and I had a kind of drug-sodden, itinerant adolescence. And so I wanted to write like a great academic. I wanted to sound like T.S. Eliot, who was classically educated and used 19 languages to write The Wasteland. And so, you know, so instead of looking at Mark Twain or looking at someone who's working in a southern idiom or a language like I grew up with, once again, I sort of set out to figure out how I could hide in some way in writing the book. But a little miracle happened as I started setting down stories, just writing down events that occurred to me, and that was that I found this voice. And I say the voice is like a big bandwidth cable that lets the, you download into the reader's head your memories and your experiences. Um, I'm going to flip-flop back to poetry here for one second. Um, because the poems also had grew out of personal experience. So I was writing autobiographically a long time before I was actually contracted to write a memoir or dared to think of myself as a memoirist. Um, I don't know. How many of you have kids who drive? Anybody have a kid who drive? Remember the first time you saw your kid leave your driveway? in your vehicle. If I had seen a chimpanzee drive my car, I would have had more confidence that I would have seen the car or the chimpanzee alive again. I I just, I saw my son drive away in that car and I thought, this is it. He's never coming back. He's going to die in a fiery crash in the next five minutes. Um, And so this poem I wrote is, like many of my poems, is right out of that kind of experience. It's called A Blessing from my 16 years' son. I have this son who assembled inside me. In a flash, he appeared, in a tiny blaze. It was during Hurricane Gloria. Outside, phone lines snapped and hissed like cobras. Inside, he was a raw pearl, microscopic, luminous, Look at the muscled obelisk of him now, pawing through the icebox for more grapes. Sixteen years and not a bone broken, not a single stitch. By his age, I was marked more ways and small. He's a slouching six-foot-three with implausible blue eyes, which settle on the pages of Emerson's self-reliance with profound belligerence. uh, I'm sorry, a girl with a nose ring could make his cell phone go buzz, or an afroed boy leaning on a mop at at Taco Bell. Creatures strange to me as dragons or eels. Sitting on my kitchen stools, each one gives him counsel as arcane as any oracle. Case Case claims school is harshing my mellow. (laughs) 
Rodney wants to date a tattooed girl because he wants a woman willing to do stuff she'll regret. (laughs) They've come to bring my son out of his broadening spiral. I recently birthed my own mom into oblivion. The night, the night he crashed the car and came home in a cop cruiser, he'd let me tuck him in. My grandmother's wedding tw- quilt from 1912 was drawn up to his goateed chin. He asked, did you and Dad screw up this much? I said, don't blame us. You're your own idiot now. At which he grinned. The girl in the crimp Chevy took it hard. The girl in the crimp Chevy took it hard. I'm sorry, my mind is just going blank. The cop said the girl in the crimp Chevy took it hard. He'd found my son awkwardly holding her in the canted headlights where he draped his own coat over her shaking shoulders. My fault, he confessed right off. Nice kid, said the cop. I mean, to me, that poem is just a little small moment, you know, that sort of is sort of any, might happen to any of us or is in some ways a very generic moment. We think of memoir as coming out of the the big grotesque moments. We think of memoir as needing high drama. A lot of students come to me now and say, but don't I need a, a platform I'm like, what? I didn't even know what a platform is. It's like, well, don't I need, you know, like an angle? I'm like, I don't, do I have an angle? I mean, what's my angle? You know? Or they have a sense that the, the book with the biggest ass whipping wins. And if that were true, then every Holocaust survivor would be a zillion copy bestseller right, than every Rwandan refugee, than every lost boy from the Sudan. Uh, we might have one or two of those books. We have a, a handful of great Holocaust memoirs, obviously. But to me, what you have to have is this kind of magical mystery, magical mixture of voice, a sense of carnality, a world that the people can actually enter, um, And also an interior life, a big interior life in the book. And as a, the strongest books are kind of organized around, I think, is somebody is at war with themselves trying to resolve or reconcile something. So in an ass-whipping memoir, in, in the U.K. they call them misery memoirs. Um, you know, it's like I woke up, I got an ass-whipping. I woke up the next day, I got an ass-whipping. The third day, there was another ass-whipping. The day four, ass-whipping number four, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem with that is even if you, uh, you know, I've done some work in the prisons. I've talked to people who've had incredible traumas. It's not something I do professionally, but I try to have tried to volunteer to do. And let's say you were kidnapped and held hostage, or your parents chained you up in the basement and beat you every day. Well, one day, you might have a plan to make them not do it. Or you might have a scheme or a way to be good. One day you would disassociate, and it's almost like you wouldn't be in there. And one day um, you would be scheming and furious about what you're going to do to them when you get loose. I mean, there's a whole range and variety of experiences in any human life. 
I think. And it's not writing about this thing rather than that thing. It's about finding in one moment all, the, all that huge range of feelings that we all go through in a single day or a single life. Um, so people always ask me if, if everybody has a memoir in them, and it's, it's certainly, I think it depends on how masochistic you are, partly. Um, but mostly, it, for me, it's been a process of revision. The truth always ambushes me. I start out, I guess it's like when you go into therapy, only when therapy you pay them. And hopefully in memoir it's the other way around. But I, I think, I think um, you have an idea about yourself where we remember ourselves in these convenient sound bites. They're these very tidy, buttoned-up things. And then when you start pecking at those to write them down, I found myself saying things like, well, it all started when she hit me back. If she had just let me hit her, it would have been fine. Or often I found that, the, that I was blaming somebody for something, and when I actually looked at it more closely, that I had some responsibility there somewhere. Um, so for me, I did, with lit, my last book, Lit, I threw away 1,200 finished, finished pages. And at one point, they were so mad at me that I just said, okay, you know, I'll sell my apartment. I'll give you all the money back because I'm doing the best I can do. I'm, I'm writing every day. You know, it's just I keep throwing it away because it's not very good. And it's not that I didn't know what had happened. I knew what had happened, but I thought the book was going to be about thing X, and it's never about that. The one thing I wasn't going to write about in that book was about my crazy mother. I'd written about my crazy mother in my first book. I didn't want to write about her anymore. Did it matter that my crazy mother had just died and I had been taking care of her and that we had had, she had gotten sober and we'd had a lot of things change between us and that I had become a mother myself, which made me look at her differently? I mean, um, so I had to write my way sort of, or sort of get ambushed by the idea or to have the balls really to go back into that place I didn't want to go be in anymore. Um, the other kind of great reversal I had in Cherry, um, my second memoir, where I was writing about my adolescence, I talked about today, I always told myself that my father had abandoned me. And it's, it's, he was an alcoholic, there's no question. I mean, he, those people check out. But he wasn't that bad an alcoholic when I was at home. It, most of it happened after I left. My mother was sort of the, the problem child when I was young. And when I started, so I was telling myself, I, re, I started out writing the scene where I'm saying goodbye to him. I, I'm going to, because all the loose marbles roll y'all's way, I was going to roll out to California and seek my fortune uh, surfing in Laguna Beach. Um, and so I got in a truck with a bunch of surfers and heads, you know, with surfboards strapped to the, strapped to the top. And I went... I, I left home and I never went back. And while I was gone, my father drank himself to death. But when I examined that notion I had had of his abandoning me, did I ever call him to pick me up that he didn't show up? No. Did I? He, he asked me to go hunting and fishing with him all the time, which was all stuff I had done as a little girl. But I had sort of just reconfigured the narrative in my mind, when I started looking for actual evidence of that abandonment, I couldn't find it. He got up at the same time, went the same job every day, came home at the same time every day. And 
he was emotionally distant, but he was kind of a stoic, but he was never, uh, never not there for me. So imagine that. I'm, I'm, I was supposed to be living an examined life. I've been in, I was 40 years old writing this book. I've been in therapy 20 years. And this whole idea of my life just suddenly wheeled around and looked completely differently. Um, another big revelation that became a sort of turning point in Liars Club, um, my mother was extremely difficult. She was very beautiful and very high-strung, and she was... She was 80 years old, and if you opened the door, there was an old man who fell in the house trying to marry her. You could lower her naked into the tundra, and there would be some man there peeling off $100 bills trying to do stuff for her. It was just the most uncanny thing. And, and uh, she was mean-mouthed and sorry and didn't give a rat's ass, and somehow these men just fell all over themselves all her life getting at her. Um, and all my life, I had this idea that my, she had really broken my father's heart, and he had been so heartbroken by her. And um, at the end, at, in my 20s, I finally confronted her, and I was like, Mom, why did you have this breakdown? What happened to you? What happened to you that you would try to kill your children? I mean, what? What, what were you thinking? And uh, she had had two children taken away from her when she was a young mother and had lost these children and had been a completely estranged and scorned by her community and by her family and had gone off to New York to become a painter and had this awful loss. And it was so weird, and she said two sentences that day that totally changed the way I looked at her. I said, Mom, why didn't you just tell us this? You know, I mean, we obviously went, I hired a Pinkerton detective, and we found these two kids, and they came, and it's her whole life changed, and she got sober, and everything was very, it's like on the, not exactly like the Disney Channel, but almost like that. I said, why didn't you just tell us this? And she said, one of the saddest things a grown woman could say to her daughter, she said, I was afraid you wouldn't like me. And And I said to her that same day, I said, I don't understand why Daddy... Stay with you. You were always so unhappy. You were such a pain in his ass. Why did Daddy stay with you? And I thought it was going to be, oh, he loved me so deeply and he was so passionate for me. And she said, he felt sorry for me. And something about that, you know, every now and then you'll hear some just had the dull thud of truth in the middle of my chest. And I thought, oh, my God. He had all the power in a way in the relationship. He was doing this because he felt bad for her. She knew she'd lost these kids. So for me, writing a memoir involves finding those deep revelations and deep mysteries that really, you know, when I wrote The Art of Memoir, it it was partly to celebrate a genre that I've been reading and writing about and teaching, you know, for 40 years. And partly because I think that what I do when I write a memoir is what anybody who leads an examined life does, right? As you're trying to reconcile what happened in your past and trying to see you're feeling all this stuff, you're trying to stay married to somebody or date somebody or be somebody's sister or brother or husband or father or whatever, and there's all this other stuff, you know, ricocheting around inside you and trying to reconcile those things somehow always becomes the core of whatever book it is I've finished. Um... So I think I'll stop talking there if you guys have questions.
Thank you. Okay, yes, ma'am. What's you want to talk to the microphone there? So, can you say more about that experience and how you get back there? Get through it and not go crazy? Yes. Um, First off, I I do have a really strong memory. I, I mean, I've always had a good memory, but I also have a very physical memory. Like, I remember physical detail, like, in a kind of crazy way. Um, Example, when I wrote Cherry, I played I remember kissing the boy in my neighborhood. I had watched this boy play every sport he had ever played in his life, the way an entomologist watches a spider. I mean, I had watched him the way a wolf watches a pork chop, you know. (laughs) For his entire life. And when I was playing a kissing game with him in the eighth or I think seventh grade, and he kissed me, I mean, it was the most thrilling thing that ever happened to me in my life. I mean, I can tell you everything about that kiss. And I remember he had a shirt on. We didn't have the polo players, you know, the Ralph Lauren shirts. With We had invertebrates. I remember he had a, a seahorse. He had a little seahorse on the front of this shirt. And I sent him the pages. He's somebody I'm still in touch with. I sent him the pages when I was done writing. And he said, when you remembered that shirt, I thought, she's a witch. (laughs) How does she remember that? So what I often say to people um, whose memories are maybe less carnal is to to try to put yourself in the place close your eyes and just, and I've done it in class, put yourself in the place physically. What does it smell like? For instance, you know, the smell is the most primary emotion. It's the, it's the first, I'm sorry, uh, sense. You know, even one-celled animals can smell. And it's very linked to emotional memory and to your snake brain. Uh, you know, you're back to your amygdala and the, where all the scary eat-you-alive things, your dragon self lives. And so it's a very primordial sense. You know, we all have that experience of walking into someplace that smells like the house we grew up in, right? And you're just like all of a sudden you'll just pass through some odor. We had these terrible gas heaters that leaked all the time. So if anytime I'm somewhere where there's a leaky gas heater, I can, it's almost like I, it's, I just like having an acid flashback or something. So to try to imagine something physical... What can you see? What can you touch? What kind of clo- what do you have on? Um, I know as girls and in my our house, I, I mean I knew what we wore to everything. I remember dresses I bought. You know, men must remember the you know baseball statistics or something. You know, it was the day Willie Mays did the. You know, it's, it's the way a, a man would remember. So it'd have to be something different for a man, a man who's writing. But I think having it's. What happens is there, it's almost like if you've ever gone to your high school reunion or something like that or college reunion and you get there and it's like they're all, you went to school with these beautiful adolescents and there are these middle-aged people there. And then somebody introduces themselves and all of a sudden their face comes up in you. 
And it's like those little magic pellets that you drop in water and the flower blooms open. You know, it's just like all... And I always say it's like when the, when the memories start coming, it's like clowns coming out of a car. It's almost like you can't believe there's so much in there. Um, or you're sitting around at some holiday event and someone's telling a story. And it's like, that never happened, that never happened. And then somebody will tell, tell you some little detail. Don't you remember we had the, the pot, that pot roast? And, oh, the pot roast, you know. Um, so I, does that help you? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was hoping maybe you would say something about the way you're writing um, or your love of language, of literature, how it relates to what we might call religious or spiritual stuff, values, concerns, activities. How does my writing or love of language... Well, I pray before I write. Um, I mean, I, I suggest people meditate before they write. I mean, you don't have to... I, I uh, went insane and converted to Catholicism 20 years ago after being an atheist my whole life, which is another whole problem I have um, is being Catholic Um, but I you know actually before I prayed I used to meditate and I would meditate and you know that old Hemingway line of just give me one true sentence let me say one true thing and I sort of I try to get out of my head and whatever you know the breathing exercises or really just try to get my consciousness south of my neck and so that, um, and try to see what it is I really need to say of a, of a given day or, you know, if I have anything to say. Um, but I don't know if that does, has think, nothing to do with language, really. Well, I think the, the, the context where the question's coming from, which is deeply embedded in my head, is that um, there are things that don't look religious and or spiritual. There's literature that doesn't look religious and or spiritual. There's poetry. Memoirs, that kind of stuff, and it's it's fuzzy stuff. It's the effects that they have, which is why you know I first encountered you as a poet, not as a memoirist. Mm -hmm. And sinners welcome your book. It reads like it's it's what I would consider to be, and it's the S word. No, it's a spiritual book, and and there's an essay in the back of the book called "Facing Altars" that's about how poetry was the first prayer I ever had because it made me feel more connected to other human beings. It made me feel less embattled and terrified. And I would read something, I would think, oh, somebody else feels this way. And then I would just feel more connected. Um, so to that, in that sense, poetry, when I say poetry has saved my life, I literally mean that it, that it connected me to other people and kept me from being such a little nut. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes, ma'am. So you say you equate um, poetry with cheating on your husband, like he's your affair, you know, with your writing. Can you talk about how you write? Like, do you write, um, you're, you're writing your memoir, you get to a point, do you stop and write a poem to kind of refresh yourself? Or do you, do you have a certain set where I'm going to write this book and then reward myself and write all the poetry? I work, I can work on poems all the time, like when I'm teaching. I, I, um, commute from New York City to Syracuse. I mean, not every day, but for 14 weeks. Um, But I can write sort of almost any time of day, almost any place on an airplane, anywhere I can work on a poem. When I'm working on a a big work of, of prose, if I get away from it for, like, more than, like, four or five days, I lose it. 
and it will take me, usually it could take me as many as 20 days to get back to where I was. So because I'm such a whore and they give me money, that when they give me money, I usually have a gun to my head and I'm trying to generate pages to finish whatever book it is I'm, I'm writing. So, um, so when I write uh, prose, I, I usually am writing very long hours, like much longer hours than you would think healthy or sane. So, and what I do is I move around the house, I move from place to place. So I'll get up and I usually write in my bed in my, with my laptop open. Uh, I meditate and then I'll do that and do that for maybe an hour and a half, two hours. I'll get a cup of tea, and then I'll go. I have a walking desk. Get on my walking desk. I'll walk for a couple hours, and then I go to my dining room table. And every time, I tell myself I'm just, like, starting over. It's just like a whole new day. But I can, I, I, when I was younger, I couldn't work, work long hours like I can now. I can work, I can work, I can work 12 or 14 hours. Which I, I, I was, I was hard-pressed to work three and a half hours, four hours as a young writer. I have much more stamina now. Yes, ma'am. Um, I loved your book, Lit, and I was just wondering if you were concerned when you were writing it about the response from your ex-husband's family, because they seem the opposite of your family. My, I was married to a very sort of super waspy Long Island polo playing Harvard hockey player type guy. The average well-bred American wasp can ignore reality better than a heroin addict. (laughs) So (laughs) I think those of you who know these people, and I I speak, I'm technically a wasp. I mean, these are capital W, St. Paul's Harvard, big wasp. Um, They're so polite, how would you know? They could be, have voodoo dolls with pins in them with my face on them, and I would never know. So um, I actually, that's not true. I mean, I've since seen my former sister-in-law a couple of times, and uh, his brother wrote me a fan letter, actually. So his oldest brother wrote me a family. So they're a very literary family. My ex-husband's a poet, and, and uh, his brother's a novelist, and so they're not, you know... Who knows, though? My ex-husband decided not to read it. Um, And I said, I'll either give you a pseudonym or you can read it and make changes. And he said, I'd rather just not know. It's a dream ex-husband, right? (laughs) Yes, ma'am. When I'm writing, I get really sick of myself. Oh, no. Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, and then I, I think like, well, who cares? And I just want to burn everything. So can you? Well, what are you writing? Memoir. Uh, you just want to burn everything. Just put it in a box and soldier on. How many pages have you written? Uh, hundreds and hundreds. I mean, a hundred? No. Five hundred, eight hundred. Five hundred, eight hundred pages. Well, you don't, you're not that sick of yourself. <laughs> I'm actually, I should be so sick of myself I, I, as you. But I, I pick it up, I put it down, it's like, ugh, who can you know, and I think, well, if... Do you if, revise? I mean, are you revising anything? Yes. 
Okay, well, I revise. Here's how many times. That's my I, favorite part. Okay, I revise things like 60 times. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. That's not like a number I just pulled out of a hat. We figured out, my ex-editor and I, 1,200 finished pages based on pages she had that they would have published. She had a box. And I said, we're going to use, I've got these other 80 pages. We're starting all over. So, um, and there were other pages besides those pages that I had thrown away that she never saw. So, um, yeah, I, I guess it's like rewrite we, everything over and over again. You yeah, just and when do you it decide it's boring. worth throwing away? I'm sorry? When do you decide it's worth throwing away? You throw out everything that's boring. There goes 800, seven, <laughs> 799 pages. Do you show it to anybody? Have you shown it to anybody? Yeah. What, do they like it or they hate it? Yeah. See, they love it. So you're being a candy I ass. I paid her. Yeah, right. Thank you. So you're being a candy yeah. ass. Yeah. If I had 800 pages, I would be doing like the happy chicken dance up here. Yes, ma'am. My relationship with my editor. I have been very blessed. I've only had, well, I guess I've had a million editors. I mean, because I've had, I write for the New Yorker. I've written for the New York Times. I've written for, you know, women's magazines. I've written for, you know, the Modern Library. I've written for, you know, critical stuff. So I've been edited by a lot of people. But you mean for the memoirs. Um, I had the same editor for the first two books as a young woman named Courtney Hodell, who now runs the Whiting Foundation. She was the secretary of my very famous editor. And um, when my famous editor left to go to Scribner, they tried to give me another famous editor, but I knew this little girl, who was about 25 years old, had been doing the real, the real work. She was right, she had gone to Brown as an undergrad, super smart young woman, and now she's, you know, 50 years old, and you know, everybody knows she's super smart. Um, she wound up being, I think she was uh, Arthur Miller's last editor. She's a super good editor, super talented at, at doing that. Um, they didn't edit that book that much. Um, Cherry and Lit... It's more just, mostly I, I bracket things and I say, this sucks, right? Question mark. And it's pretty much, I'm pretty much always right. It's mostly them cutting things that I know are going to cut. It's not like they say, I'm going to cut this, and I go, oh, no, we can't cut that. That has never happened to me. It's more me saying, shouldn't we take this out? And somebody says, oh, no, I like this, or you know, maybe revise it this way. But I have... She was a brilliant line editor, as you know, as opposed to just saying, you know, write more about this, write less about that or something. Um, the editor I have now, Jennifer Barth, who edited at HarperCollins, who edited Lit and Art of Memoir, super, super smart, also went to Yale. Um, I just do, I, I, I'm, I'm told I'm easy to edit because you tell me to do something, I'm just pretty much, okay. I just have, um, I don't know, I'm a trusting soul. But I haven't had, I've had really smart editors, you know, pretty much. The New Yorker editors are all pretty good. Yes, ma'am.
very long time. Thank you. Okay. Um, this came after I read The Liars Club, and I, of course, it really resonated with me. And around that time, I befriended um, a woman who I found out she was going into social work. So as a gift, I gave her that book. I came to find out after giving her that book that her mother was your publisher. Um, back when, I guess, you were publishing poems. Her mother was my publisher? Yes. She had a small publishing house in New York City. And at some point, something happened <laughs> where um, maybe it was after you wrote Liar's Club or you, you had been courted by bigger publishing companies and you decided or told them that you were going to stay with her because she was with you from the beginning. Does any of this ring a bell? Yes and no. I'm trying to be one of two or three people. Mm-hmm. Her mother was my publisher. Who mm-hmm. is this person? Tell me well, your Well, my name. friend's name is um, Mary Owenessian, but I'm not sure if her mother shares the same name. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> my first book of poems was published by Wesleyan University Press in, like, I think I was pregnant, 1985. Mm-hmm. So maybe the woman who read... Wesleyan University Press, but um, then I went with James Laughlin from New Directions, who was like, you know, Ezra Pound and William Carlos Williams' editor, so I mean, when James Laughlin mm-hmm. wants to be your editor, you say yes. It's like, mm-hmm. God. So, I don't know I, who that is. I don't is. know. I don't know. It's been so long since um, I've talked to her about this, so I was just curious. I'm puzzled. Maybe it was that first book of poems. I'm just curious. Uh, you mentioned that your two of your books are going to be movies, and one will be a TV series. No, I. I um, you know, it's when you're dealing with Hollywood, you can yeah. say any sentence, and it's true. Right. Yeah. So. Um, Mary Louise Parker got in touch with me. Like I don't know seven or eight years ago and said, I want to play you and I want to do this and I want us to do this as a TV show. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a short script, a half-hour script for HBO, co-wrote it with a woman, and HBO was was a miasma. Then I tried to get it set up at Showtime, and they were too slow, so I just took it away from them. And Amazon is is faking that they're going to do it now. So we'll see. But but you'll have an, an active role in it. I just wondered because a lot of times, you know, oh, you no, I'm an executive, give your book up for adoption and you, no, know, you never see it again. No, I'm an executive producer and I've written the pilot and we've got Mary Louise and I've got Sarah Timberman who does Masters of Sex and Justified in Elementary. And Great. She's, so it's pretty nicely, nicely packaged. It's looking dangerously close that they'll do it. But there's such lying sex. <laughs> Hi. Would you be willing to say something about the interplay between your writing and your therapy? But the interplay between my writing and my therapy. I don't think my writing would have been possible if I had not done therapy. I'm, I'm somebody who's a big fan of the mental health profession. Um, uh, I mean, I, you know, I was 19 years old and I, I started in therapy and I, I realized I'd just been depressed my whole life. I mean, it was just amazing. Um, so I think I would have been too dead to write a book if I hadn't been in I think I would have killed myself. 
I mean, in either in some sideways, just drinking, drugging way, or. Um, but I think the habit or the practice of trying to live and examine life. Um, uh, if you come from a background like I come from, the way I, I tell people who are struggling because I try to I try to work with women who are trying to get sober, it's sort of like you have a trick knee. You know, you're like a grown-up about 95% of the time or 98, even 98% of the time by the time you're my age. But then something really overwhelming or horrible happened, and it's almost like your clothes puddle around you and you feel like you just want to fall. You feel, I actually have a feeling like I'm falling out of an airplane. It's a very big, uh, overwhelming physical feeling. It's not exactly like a panic attack because I, I don't hyperventilate and I can keep going. Um, but that's what I mean about all that meditation, all that soothing stuff. I sort of need kind of all that stuff. But I don't, I mean, that kind of thing hasn't happened to me in years. But it's still, so I think, I also think in writing, I always say the writing, the purpose of the writing is the reader. If the reader doesn't read it, you know, it's not for you. It's not just for you. Um, the reader is the spark that makes the bomb go off. So, um, so it's, not, it's therapeutic and cathartic, but it's not therapy. It's not the same. And part of it is, I think, too, um, in therapy, you're more the baby and, and they're the mommy. And in, in, uh, in writing, you're the mommy and the reader's the baby. I think you have to be the you have to be a grown up. I think, especially in memoir, I think you have to be a grown up. Even if you're writing about being a child, you have to be a grown up. Is that it? All right. Okay, thank so you, guys. Thank you. I'll, I'll sign books if you want me to sign books. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.